Good morning. I always need a minute after that song. Um, I don't blubber as much here as I do at home, but it hits me. Turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 9. Um, as you're turning there, I'm just so encouraged. Um, as I've been looking at this passage for a couple weeks now, a few weeks, uh, when I thought I was going to be speaking today uh, to fill in for Ken, um, and I'm just so encouraged with the, with the thoughts, not only that Ken shared in the last week, but also just what was shared at the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord really encouraged me with what I've been looking at. And so I just feel a unity in the spirit of what he's speaking to men's hearts and women's hearts and where we're all at this morning. So I think we're going to continue kind of a thought. Um, hopefully you'll feel the, the consistency uh, in that. So in Jeremiah chapter 9, just two verses, uh, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Let's commit our time to him. Father, we thank you uh, first and before anything just for who you are. As we consider these, just these two verses, um, it's one of the many ways you've told us who you are. So that we can know you and we can worship you and we can obey you. We can have intimacy with you. Uh, we need to know you. So I thank you for revealing yourself to us and certainly for revealing yourself in our Lord Jesus Christ, who was you in perfection in every way. So, Lord, we just ask you to bless our time now in, in looking at this word, and may our hearts just be really uh, inspired to love you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, these verses are actually kind of unique where they're at, I think, because it's really in the heart of God sending through Jeremiah some pretty harsh judgment upon Judah. Um, he's telling them they're, what they're about to go through when Babylon takes them over is going to be horrific. They're going to go through horrors, horrors and judgment. And yet in the middle of that, he drops this. Because God always wants everyone to know who he really is. No one ever wants to be just looked at for one thing they do, because he's doing it for a reason, because of who he is. But he has to begin with, there's, there's, this, it's kind of split into two parts, right? We have... What's wrong with men, which we all pretty much know because we have mirrors and a Bible, but then we have what's special about God and what makes him God. He gives us two unique things, and they're both in threes, which is kind of cool. He gives us threes. And what he wants to talk about is, is glorying. Glorying. Is glorying a word? I don't know. But we're, it's, it's something that we like to do. It's something that we like to do. We like to shine praise on things. Typically, it's ourselves. <laughs> and that's kind of the problem, right? There are things in here that are not bad. The problem is that man likes to shine glory on the wrong thing. My brother shared this morning. We like to share and shine glory on the wrong thing. And that just happens to be ourselves. Glory, look what makes me shine. And every time we do that, these things become idols, become something that we cherish more than God. 
So the first one is wisdom. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. See, wisdom's not bad. In fact, we're supposed to have wisdom. Wisdom cries out and begs and pleads for people to have wisdom. Wisdom was there at creation when God created everything. I think I've talked about this many times. I feel like I'm repeating myself, which just means that I, God still wants me to learn whatever he's trying to teach me. So I appreciate your patience as I repeat myself. But wisdom is critical to the relationship with God. God doesn't say you're bad because you have wisdom. God's saying you're glorifying yourself because you have wisdom. Where does wisdom come from in itself? From the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom, not man's wisdom. And I'm not talking about intellectual knowledge. We're not talking about knowing how the universe works or how physics works or how we can make atoms explode. We're talking about wisdom, judgment, discernment. What is right? What is wrong? What do I, should I do this? Should I do that? How do I walk in this life? Should I have that? Should I not have that? All things are profitable for me. Not all, th- all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. I'm going to say that backwards. Part of the problem. That's our wisdom. That's the problem. And what we love to do is every time we make a good decision, which is hopefully actually by the word of God, we love to go, man, I'm so smart. See that? I got to tell somebody about this. I do this all the time. I got to tell somebody about it. Don't tell my wife about the great things I did at work. Everyone else is an idiot. I'm the only smart one. We love to take pride, but true wisdom comes itself from God. We become prideful in biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge is supposed to lead us to a deeper place of humility before God. The more we understand God and ourselves, we're supposed to get humbler. But we learn all these complex theologies, and I've seen this happen, especially sometimes with young men. They become very arrogant. We're supposed to get humbler. But we love to say, look at what I know. See, wisdom's not the crime. Wisdom is to be cherished and sought out. But what I found, I'm going to to start with wisdom. Each one of these that we like to glorify ourselves in are actually given to us for others, too. Wisdom is one of those. See, we're supposed to seek each other out for counsel. So I'm supposed to have wisdom so that when you're facing a decision, you can come to me and say, Greg, what do you think? What do you think the word of God says? And when I have a decision to make or I'm facing some kind of conflict, I should be able to go to any one of you and say, what do you think God's word says? Help me share, share with me the wisdom that God's given you. But if I take pride in my wisdom, I have no value in that. We're supposed to represent the wisdom of God by sharing what God's word says, not our own. And wisdom, wisdom itself is the humility to seek counsel. When I'm glorifying myself in wisdom, I don't need any help. I got it all. I've got it all. You you ask me anything, I got the answer. I don't need to know what you think. I've already got it figured out. That's not wisdom. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. Even if I think I got it figured out, I should still seek counsel. But when I'm full of myself, I don't. So God says that him who glories in his wisdom
So those who may watch this video and see what just happened, I had no batteries, so you didn't miss anything. Not that I would have anything you'd miss anyway. All right. So might, let him who glories, let the mighty man, I'm going to read the word of God correctly. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the mighty man, might is there. Strength is there. God does not say, don't you dare have might. Don't you dare have strength. Don't glory in it. Don't take pride in the fact that you have strength. Doesn't God rejoice in meekness? Doesn't God, not weakness, meekness. Meekness requires the restraint of strength. It is not the absence of strength. It is the restraint of strength so that it cannot be used for its own purposes but to benefit others. If we have a strength, it is not to say, look at what I can do, because it doesn't just have to be physical strength. It's any place of dominance and power in my eyes. That's the way I look at it. Do I have authority? Do I have a position where I have authority? Do I have any kind of lead? I am not to glory in what I have. It is given to me to benefit others, to accomplish things, to get things done. Not to say, look at what I can do, but how can I help? Not what can I do, how can I help? If I glory in my might, then you're there to serve me. It's a strength given to accomplish great things for God, to bless those who are weak, and to represent the kindness of God. When people know their strength and see it used in a meek way, it's a representation of Jesus Christ himself. But when we glory in our might, we just exercise our power and our position. We need to use it to assist, even to protect, to help, to aid. It doesn't just have to be physical. It could be knowledge. It could be all kinds of things. But we are not to glory in that. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Again, nothing wrong with riches. How do missionaries eat? The riches of the body given to assist them. When I take glory in my riches, I keep it for myself. I want you to see how much I got. But God's given to some to help others, to help those in need. But in glory, we want to say, look at what I got. It doesn't have to be money. It could be possessions. It could be lots of different things. You, you, have to, you have to apply it in your life. Where are my riches? What do I glory in? But it's given... We are to enjoy the fruits of our labor. It's scriptural. But it's not something that we are to worship, especially when we're keeping it for ourselves when others have need. It's to represent the generosity of God. So wisdom is to show the wisdom of God. And might is to show the strength of God and how it's used to help others. And riches are used to show the generosity of God. Clearly, they didn't have that in Judah, Judea. We know that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Whatever it is we collect, whatever it is we gather, whatever we think that gives us status is our riches. But nobody takes it with them. So we should not be worshiping what we cannot take into the glory of heaven. So what does God say next? 
But let him who glories, glory is good, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me. When we shine our glory on God, we are celebrating who he is. We're drawing attention to who he is. But we have to know him, we have to understand him to do that properly so that he gets the glory he deserves. He shouldn't get false glory. He should get glory for who he actually is. And a quick warning here, where we're coming out of, or as we're transitioning from what we glory in to where we should be glorying, let's also be careful that we can fall into the trap of what I'm calling prideful transference. Now I'm going to take glory that I know God. I'm going to be prideful that I know God. Just like the Corinthians. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Christ. Humility. To know and understand him should bring us to the place of humility. We're looking at Ephesians. And I'll remind us again when we looked at Ephesians 1 verse 17. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the Father of glory itself, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. As we know God, and we, we turn that now into worship and glorifying, we have to always remember from that place of humility that that knowledge itself came from him. There's no knowledge of God that I've acquired because I have a special skill and I'm brilliant. Just the opposite. The less there is of me, the more I know of him. And the more I know of him, the more glory I can give him. And that's my end. That's my purpose. Not to take pride that I know him, but to increase in my humility the more I know him. So he says he wants us to understand and know him. Clearly what God is speaking of is intimacy, intimate knowledge. To understand and know, it's not facts. It's not what happened in 1000 B.C. and 700 B.C. and 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. or 29 A.D., whenever these things happen, because the monk couldn't add right. The fact is, those facts bring us into the understanding of what God does, but all of that is meant there so that we know Him. We know Him. I can't glorify Him if I don't know Him. And as I was looking up the the dictionary translation, right, of these words. It's in English to understand, but what was it in Hebrew, and what does it really mean to the Hebrew who reads it in that original language? It's always good for us to do that. And understands had two words assigned to it by Mr. Strong, trusting that he knew what he was doing. Circumspect and intelligent. Like, circumspect? I don't think that word means what you think it means. Circumspect. It means to carefully assess. To understand God the way we're supposed to, we are supposed to carefully assess who he is and what he does and what his word says. We're supposed to examine it. You can't understand it if you don't examine it. I cannot understand my wife. Put a period right there. But I cannot understand my wife unless I examine her. Why does she respond to these things this way? Why does she respond to these things that way? And why do I do this? She says that. 
I examine those things, and that allows me to understand her better. God wants us to do that. He wants us to have an intelligent application of who he is. It's a wonderful book. We also see the things that he does, and we have one another. Understanding God is critical. It's critical to how we sustain our faith when we can't understand God. There are things that we just don't understand. God, why? Why would you allow this? Why would you do this? So many people are struggling right now believing in God because they don't understand why he does what he does or why he allows what he allows. But if I take what I can understand and I trust in that, when it comes to what I can't understand, I have my faith. But I have to have the things I can understand. And there are things that people, that people struggle with that other people don't have the same struggle with. There's all kinds of things that happen in our lives and just in this world and the ones we love. But we can be comforted by what we do know. This made me think of Ephesians 2. Turn with me real quick to Ephesians 2. Please. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised, up us, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If I don't understand verses 1 through 3, how can I appreciate verses 4 through 8? Right? If I don't fully acknowledge and understand what caused my separation from God and who I really am, I can't fully appreciate what it makes for Christ, means for Christ to make me alive. I have to fully grasp and understand the severity of the fact I was dead. Dead. Christ has made me alive. If I don't understand that, I can't appreciate how much life that he gave me means. And to know, not head knowledge, not facts, the intimate connection to the character and the passion. I need to know what makes my wife tick. I need to know. I need to know where God's heart is. I need to know where God's mind is. I can't have assumptions, and I can't just have information detail. God wants us to know him. And I love how he says this. Let's go back to uh, Jeremiah. What is it that he wants us to understand and know? Me. 
Could have put a period right there. God could have put a period right there. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. End of sentence. Conversation over. That's where it all centers. But he's going to give us more. What is that? That is him? That I am the Lord. Could have put a period. The statement that I am the Lord, that phrase, occurs in the Old Testament 164 times. That's God speaking. That's how much it means to him that we know that he is the Lord. He repeats it over and over and over again through the Old Testament. Speaking to Moses, speaking to the prophets through Ezekiel and Daniel, all kinds of prophets. Happens over and over again. Sometimes repetitively in the same passage um, in different books, especially in the Pentateuch. I am the Lord. He is the one true God. We know that. Preach it to the choir, but it's in here. So I say it with joy. He is the Lord. He is the one. And he wants us to know him not just as a creator, as the existential being that made all things, but he's out there, he's above everything. But no, he is the Lord. He is the one who exercises kindness and loving mercy. He is the intimate God. He is the one that involves himself in our lives. Didn't just make us and walk away. He made us for a purpose. He is the Lord. The one true God. The Redeemer. And then he expresses to us what kind of Lord he is. Again, he doesn't just stop with, you need to know that I'm God. Have a nice day. But he says, I need you to understand and know that I am the Lord exercising, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. He is an active God. He is an involved God. He is a purposeful God. He is a God with intent. He is a God with relation. He relates to us. He, these things are for us. I, I like to look at these three things loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness as kind of the summation of the attributes of God that are what make him holy. See, holy is not an attribute. Holy is a, is a place. It's like a, a condition is the right word. I apologize if it's the wrong word. But there are things about God that are unique to God. And all those things are what make him holy. He is set apart. And anything that is not like him can't be in his, in his place which is why we need redemption. These three things sum up to me what makes God holy, because he does them in perfection, which we cannot. Loving kindness. Remember, he exercises these things actively. This is not just, I'm nice if you need anything. He is actively loving kind. Not just kind, loving kind. Loving kindness is the kindness that comes from a place of genuine love for the recipient of the kindness. I walk into a store, someone walks by, I hold the door, it's kindness. 
when God picks me up and carries me through, <laughs> that's loving kindness. That's loving kindness. It's a merciful kindness. It has the sensitivity for the need of kindness. It recognizes what kindness is needed, where the hurt is, where the need is, and expresses kindness directly proportionate to what's needed there. The world needs loving kindness. You think about what Ken said last week, and I know I talked about, I talked about this months ago when, I, when we did Romans 1 and 2. The world is lost. This world is lost. Kids are lost. People are lost. They are so looking in the wrong places. The first thing that's going to bring them around to the right place is loving kindness, not judgment and hatred. It was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. A kindness, a loving kindness that we did not deserve. And he exercises it regularly. We need to understand and know that he is the Lord who exercises loving kindness. Judgment. The big J word that really nobody likes. Is it just me? I'm just curious. I don't know if you want to raise your hands or whatever. But is your first reaction, whenever someone says the word judgment, does your mind to something like guilty verdict? Right? There was a judgment. Guilty. Right? That's always the word, that, the, the expression that's connotated on judgment. You did something bad and you got judged for it. That's how we always react to it as human beings. That's not always the case with God. God just measures everything all the time. That's what he does. In order to bless good things, he needs to judge it and go, yeah, it was good. It's not always negative. He just has an equal impartial balance, scales that are never corrupted. And he puts everything on it. And he judges fairly and rightly because he is the Lord who exercises that. He measures right and wrong or good and evil. I've been seeing other people saying this a lot. I can't really give anybody credit to it. But, you know, one of the atheistic arguments, right, is why would a good God allow things to happen in the world? Probably if I said this before. But the answer is, he wiped out whole peoples. And you guys are mad about that in the Old Testament. He exercised judgment. And when people were sacrificing their children on altars of iron statues, he wiped them off the face of the earth. That was good. But now when, when, when people want to be judged for, for evil, they say, well, don't be so judgmental. Well, why does your God allow these things? God will judge. God will judge. He blesses good. He rewards good. And he punishes wickedness. What we need to remember it's the condemnation of evil when it comes to God's righteous judgment, but it's not the condemnation of the evil committers, so to speak. They have to bear the brunt of the judgment. But remember what he says in Ezekiel 33.11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, God is so committed to good that evil makes him furious. 
and it requires a response. But he's still good because he's right in his judgment. He's pure. But remember this, in Ecclesiastes, our buddy Solomon said in 12.14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Remember, the things that we do, God will judge as good. There are rewards, there are blessings now, but there are eternal rewards for doing good. Don't forget that he is a righteous judge, but we need to understand and know that he's the God who judges. And my favorite, righteousness. Not really my favorite, that's not right. But I like it a lot. Charity, virtue, justice. It's doing good. It's doing good to those in need. Remember, when God reveals his character... A lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll see the prophets rebuking Israel because they're just not caring for widows and orphans. They're ripping off the poor. Remember how angry Jesus got when he went into the temple and drove out the, the money exchangers and flipped over the tables. That's God's righteousness. That is, a, that is a, a demand for good, not to exploit those who are in need, but to do good as well. And God exercises this in his nature on a regular basis. In Psalm 143.1, David said, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. What David is really saying, besides God help me, I trust you. You know, God's righteousness gives us the ability to trust him. Not always to give us what we ask for, but what he'll do. Because he always does good. It's his only way. And that is his righteousness. And these are things that separate him. It is why we need someone intercede for us, because we do not have these things. It is why God needed to bring these things together of judgment and righteousness and loving kindness, and they all met on the cross. All these things met on the cross. His loving kindness allowed our sins to be pardoned because another took our place. It's loving kindness that allowed the idea of a sacrifice to exist at all. That's loving kindness. Christ, wholly and completely, was judged rightly for our sins because he took our place. That's fair judgment. That's right judgment by God. Think of the horror that Jesus experienced. That is what we deserved. God was not wrong in how he, he expressed his wrath on his son. That's what we deserved. But it's Christ's righteousness that's imputed to us now. Christ was perfect in every way. So now we do not have to bear God's judgment. What God says about these things for in these, I delight. Think about that. What does it mean for something to give God delight? Inexpressible joy? 
happiness, fulfillment, completeness. It gives him great pleasure. It's the completeness of what he wants to do. It gets done. And it gives him joy when he does them. All these things reveal that he is a a God who is a person with heart and character and love. And this aligns completely with the real heart of God. He does not delight in sacrifice, but in compassion. It's the same word used there. I do not delight. You do not delight in the sacrifice of bulls, but in compassion. But because he is righteous and loving kind, he puts it in place. In Isaiah 53, speaking of the coming Messiah and his suffering, It says it pleased him to bruise him in verse 10. It's the same word. The same word. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness, he delights, but it also delighted him to bruise his own son. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves us. Because it fulfilled these three things in him. So just a few verses to uh, bring this to closure. Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should boast or glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We had a wonderful time this morning glorifying the Lord, didn't we? Isn't it great to glorify him and just think about who he is? Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Let that be our heart's desire. Know him in that way, in that deep, intimate way. How the things that give God delight were fulfilled in his son. To know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Psalm 107, verse 43 says, Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. I hope that we can look at God and see the things that he does in a way that helps us to understand him and know him and appreciate him and value him and trust him. Trust him. Look for the exercising of these things, the application of God doing these things, and then we will celebrate in them when we see them. We will glory in them because it's all for him. Let's close in prayer. Loving God, we thank you so much for who you are. We do glorify you as the one Lord, the one God, the one creator, the one redeemer, the one king, the one who sits on high. Thank you for these things that make you who you are, for this undeserving mercy that we get, 
the fact that we can trust that you will be righteous in judgment and you are righteous in all things. You do good. You only do good. When we don't understand, help us to remember these things, Lord. Help us to trust you and to worship you even what we can't understand because we do understand these things are true of you. We can't understand. We can know that this is how you work and what you're doing. And you will bring it out so that you are glorified. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great week.